This episode is brought to you by Dragon Ball Legends, the mobile fighting game based on the Dragon Ball series. Featuring high-quality 3D graphics and authentic voice acting, the game follows Shallot, an original character, and his adventures with Goku and others. With intuitive controls and simple card-based gameplay, unleash combos and powerful team-based attacks. Battle players around the world in friendly matches, compete in the rankings, or team up in co-op. And now Dragon Ball Legends 5th anniversary is on. Download Dragon Ball Legends today. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. I think that there needs to be a gap. And there needs to be a commitment, you know, from both sides uh, to, to, you know, use the skills that, uh, that either side has to, to fill that gap. Um, and then the, uh, the workers will, will typically do the rest themselves uh, because they're so passionate about what they're doing. You know, just about everyone I've ever met doing social work or working in the not-for-proper sector generally uh, is there for, because they, they want to change the world. Those are the wise words of Chris Mills. Chris is Trust and Foundations Manager at Brotherhood of St. Lawrence. He's a board member at Society Melbourne and has worked previously at Launch Housing, the Salvation Army and DHHS Victoria. Chris has had a really interesting career going from counselling and casework to higher level work focusing on funding and supporting key programs that lead to social change. We've had some career overlap at DHHS Victoria and share reflections on working across different sectors and how these sectors can, in different ways, help to address social problems. Humans of Purpose is now 100% community-powered, with our generous Patreon supporters enabling me to cover my majority of my monthly costs of production. As always, a big thank you to our community of supporters, including Humanism, Clyde, Susie, Kynan, Deb, Sue Kay, Carmen, Misha, Jasmine, Sue P, Joel H, Levi, Jules, Sally, Will, B, Lyndon, Olivia, Joe McCartan, Joel F and Stuart. You can become a monthly Patreon supporter today for as little as a price of a single cup of coffee at $4. Of course, you can support us at whatever level you like. I highly recommend checking out the Humans Plus option for some amazing behind-the-scenes access and ability to be connected to our podcast guests. Just this Friday, we held our first Patreon-exclusive live Zoomcast with Lyndon Galea and five of our Patreons in attendance. Our Patreons had a front-row seat to the action and gave me some great questions to ask Lyndon. To join our Patreon community, just hit the link in our show notes or head to patreon.com slash humansofpurpose. We recorded this conversation in person a few weeks ago between lockdowns. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Chris as much as I did. Chris, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you here. Thanks for joining me, mate. Oh, thanks very much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's quite funny because we were on a panel together uh, many moons ago at uh, Kingwood Mallison's and uh, mm. you remembered me, I remembered you. And then uh, a couple of years later, uh, through Levi Fernandez, big fan of the show, friend and fellow boulderer, mm. we are back here together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Levi uh, is missing the bouldering, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, what about you? We're both back at it. Uh, so he sent me a text this week saying that he's back on the wall. I've been on the wall a couple of times during the week. Mm. Um, can't, can't tell you how addictive and wonderful it is to be back uh, climbing indoors. It sounds absolutely ridiculous, but um, and it shouldn't be, uh, but uh, having a passion like that and having it taken away and then having it return is a really sort of interesting journey. Mm. Anyway, enough about me and my side <laughs> obsessions. We are here to examine your career journey in life. Um, 
You've done some amazing stuff. I'm really quite, you know, blown away by your um, history, not just at Brotherhood of St. Lawrence, but what you're doing at Society Melbourne to help Levi and the team. Um, you've come up through DHHS in a very sort of natural casework role with youth as well. Um, rather than me um, do your biography, uh, can you just share a little bit about your career journey and um, how you came to be here today? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for that introduction. It's, uh, it's very, very good to hear it uh, like that. Um so the Department of Health and Human Services uh, was my first job as a, a social worker and um, I worked uh, as a case support worker for child protection and that lasted about uh, sort of nine months. I really enjoyed doing that and, and um, concurrently while I was doing that I was working at the Salvation Army for a, a really uh, great youth refuge in St Kilda, um, one of the best gross accommodation facilities I've ever seen and um, beautiful staff there who uh, took an, a genuine interest in, in me and, and my development as a young man, as a young social worker. So that was a great opportunity. I loved uh, working there and met some extraordinary people and loved doing the work. Um, always uh, worked with uh, people who were 16 to, to 24 or 25 and uh, the goal was to essentially move them into a, uh, a housing situation that was um, going to be more uh, sustainable for them, more affordable um, as they moved through the next sort of phases of their life. So it wasn't the end point for any of them, um, but it was uh, it was great work and and um, you know very funny at times and very emotional at other times and and uh, and always um, you know I, I, I left that job feeling terrific every day going home. Um, that's a, that's the the ideal state of any job, isn't it? It really happens, but when you, when you've got a job like that, you you tend to appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I look back on those days very fondly and um, and I'm so grateful to, to the people I worked with, uh, who many of whom I, I still keep in contact with. And um, then the next thing I did was uh, was work with adults at Launch Housing um, and was based in, in Fitzroy, but Launch Housing sort of all over Melbourne. And the best thing about that transition was that um, working with uh, with young people and then and then going to work with, with adults uh, – I didn't know this initially, but it ended up being kind of quite beautifully natural to as as a means of developing my own skill set and uh, you know my ability to relate to people who are experiencing complex circumstances and and then work with them to to find the right options for them. Uh, the housing system, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but uh, it's quite a jigsaw puzzle. It sure is. We, um, I'm a bit familiar with it, but um, maybe you could brush stroke it a little bit. I know that we do um, we do have a, a launch uh, person working at our youth hub in Moorabbin as part oh, of the task force. So cool. to help yeah. sort of you know insource some of those um, for youth with housing needs mm. to have that on site. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's changed a bit since I first began, and I've been out of it for a couple of years now. So some of the information that I'm, I'm saying might be a bit out of date, but. Um, Essentially, there's a range of different uh, housing options. Um, each one is uh, is suitable for you know a couple of uh, cohorts at a time in, in um, you know particular circumstances. In the case of working with young people, the goal was uh, either family reunification or um, private rental. They were usually considered to be best, or they you know for some of the more um, kind of complex uh, young people, there might be um, we, we would be looking at supported accommodation and launch housing has a few of those and and um other agencies do too um and then working with adults uh it tended to be more about 
either private rental or transitional housing or public housing. And um, both transitional housing and public housing have fairly significant waiting lists and private rental is becoming increasingly unaffordable, although the the pandemic, um, you know, might see rents stabilise for a little while. Well, do we call that a silver lining or are you opposed to the use of the terminology silver lining for anything pandemic related? I think in that case it, it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we can call it, maybe we can even call it a positive because um, mm. it's good to have some good news stories. Yeah, yeah. So I worked at Launch Housing for uh, 18 months in that capacity mm. doing uh, case management with adults yep. and um, that included families and also uh, assertive outreach to people who were sleeping rough and then Focusing on those sorts of housing options, you know, crisis accommodation, rooming housing, private rental, uh, transitional housing and, and public housing. It was a great um, – it just gave me kind of like a really complete experience. And uh, by the time um, I, you know, I was 18 months into that role, um, I was getting on a bit in, in my 20s um, and uh, also studying a, a Master of Public Policy at uh, RMIT, um, which was great uh, and taught me a lot about how to – structure all of these experiences that I'd had um, and communicate them well uh, to people who would be either interested in, in being involved in the work or funding the work or, or um, you know, just generally... Championing, uh, championing the work and that exactly. ad- sort of advocacy skill set maybe. Yeah, and I got this great opportunity at Launch Housing to go into the fundraising team and um, so then learn a lot about working with philanthropists and uh, major donors Um and I'm still doing that to this day at the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence, which is uh, great. Mate, that's a, that's a very succinct wrap for somebody who's um, done so much in such little time. And even in my intro, I kind of just skipped over the launch housing part. So apologies for that. No no problem at all. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, I think as you could probably tell from the way that I was describing that, my heart definitely sits in, in the work that I was doing as a social worker. But um, it's interesting that it sort of sounds like for you a big part of your journey was thinking – you had a passion to work with young people, but then you sort of wanted to find a different way to elevate that, the importance of that, and really tell the story around that and help create systemic change for that purpose. It's lovely of you to say that. That's uh, exactly what I was what I was going for, really, in that transition. And um, in many ways, the opportunity to, to do fundraising uh, came up, um, you know, a little bit uh, randomly. Um, and I wasn't 100% sure what I was getting myself into when I, uh, when I went into it. But it's, it's turned out wonderfully well. And uh, I'm really enjoying where I'm at in my career at the moment. Um, I suppose the opportunities that I have to use what I've, what I've learned over time and, um, and then communicate it to people who, uh, you know, many times already get it, but, uh, you know, are just looking for the right opportunity to be involved in um, – it's incredibly satisfying when you when you meet somebody and then you can just make a, a perfect match between the right program and the right passionate funder who then becomes a champion for that program and um, you watch all of that develop and and it's quite obvious you know to me when I've I've played a part in something that um, is growing and, and making the world a better place and I feel very privileged to be in that position. So do you see yourself as kind of a matchmaker of sorts? I wouldn't say that. Um, there's a lot of information available on the internet. And then as long as you can um, – like I'm, I'm very new in the fundraising space, yep. but I'm, I'm starting to meet, you know, some people. Um, and so uh, my knowledge of um, what they're interested in is getting better. Yep. And uh, it takes time, but I think I'm, I'm, you know, on the way. I definitely have met some 
perfect uh, fundraising matchmakers in my time. I'm working one the, with one at the moment, or yep. a couple, um, yep. which is terrific. Yeah, but I, I mean that, I guess, in the sense that you are looking to find people who are interested in funding sort of youth type of projects um, that, you, that you're doing yourself mm. and um, at the Brotherhood, and you're also um, trying to communicate. You're trying to find that alignment, I guess, where you're telling the story around what matters for that youth market from the experience of not just as a person who is maybe kind of mid-manager in that space, but as somebody who's had the lived experience of working quite closely with youth, I guess that would be a really like another um, sling in your in your bow, really, or another arrow in your bow that you've got that many others in your space might not. That is something that's... Uh you know, really advantageous, actually. Um, certainly when talking to people who run the programs, uh, I can have a, a, a fairly coherent conversation with them about what they're doing. Um, and then uh, when I'm talking to donors as well, um, I have found that, it, it, you know, sometimes some questions would be pretty tough, but for the most part, most questions, I'll, I'll be able to have some sort of theoretical framework or personal experience framework to, from which to answer it relatively well. Um so it turns into a quite a smooth conversation for the most part. How do um, you like? What was it like for you to make that transition? Was it challenging to decide all of a sudden I'm working directly with youth and I can sort of see the the, the um, fruits of my labour or progress? And then you go kind of you, you sort of lift your gaze a little bit and then you work a bit more on the machine or the system rather than working directly. How how hard is it to make that transition? Because I think sometimes we we idealise a bit when we look back on transition. Mm. Was that a, a tough transition for you? It was actually. Uh, it has been terrific looking back, you know, the hindsight because uh, in hindsight because I, I realised I came into the fundraising side of things um, feeling so confident about what I knew from a program perspective but knowing so little about how not-for-profit governance works, mm. about, um, you know, the sort of strategic uh, underpinnings of um, not-for-profits, how they actually uh best communicate what they do to a broader market rather than getting bogged down in, in quite yeah, specific in detail, which was what I was so used to doing. Yeah. Um, how they position themselves in the broader market uh, and um, and then the finance side of things, which is, um, wow, it's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm learning so much more about how to run an effective business, you know, in, in the not-for-profit space. So I really get a kick out of doing that now. Um, what do you think are the best ways we can help youth in, in distress or struggle today? That's a very good question. I might use this opportunity actually to revert back slightly. So the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence doesn't work specifically with just youth. It um, certainly has a massive youth yep. uh, sort of section. Um, and then it also works with uh, children and families, uh, works with um, uh, people so then, right. I, then I have to change my question to how do we help everyone today? Yeah, yeah. Well, what's the best way to help everyone? I would, I would not dump that on you. <laughs> yeah. And and there's uh, work with uh, people who are newly arrived, NDIS, and there's, there's aged care. So it's, it's really broad. So um, that has been great, uh, you know, dipping my toe into aged care and, and um, people who are newly arrived and, and then um, children and families, which are not areas that I'm at all uh, an expert in. But I, I do uh, feel very confident about working with young people and of course you know from a, a um, perspective of someone who did do that work I need to you know kind of check myself and, and remind myself that uh, you are several years removed from actually being you know on the front line so to speak um, so I'll answer that question the best way that I, I know how but uh, I, you know please make this a conversation a discussion because I, I'm certainly not going to answer it perfectly 
Um, but I, I really like uh, uh, the, the notion of um, working with a young person uh, and meeting them where they're at and then um, working with them to reframe their experiences and, and, and um, you know, all of the, I suppose, negative things that they may think about themselves or, or the things that uh, make it difficult for them to achieve their goals and um, just walk alongside that that young person to uh, identify, you know, what it is that they like about themselves, uh, which could take a lot of time, um, what it is they, they want to uh, do or, you know, whether it be in the future or just in the immediate term, um, and then coming up with a plan with them. Um, sometimes the actual planning process has been something that they've never done before, uh, or they they may have done it, uh, you know, purely from a, a, a sort of a, a deficit, a deficit uh, sort of focus. Um, and I used to really, really like that. Thinking about some of my favourite outcomes with young people, it would uh, have been born, you know, out of a a ninety minute meeting, half of which was spent laughing. Um, or we might go for a walk and, and talk about things, and um, that was a, a joy to do that sort of work. Um, and I'm not sure if you were asking uh, mostly from a, a structural perspective. Well, I think you've answered really good in terms of a practical client-centered sort of approach uh, response. So, so I think what you did there was, you know, you made me think a lot about what our counsellors might say if I asked them, how would we best help people? Um, I guess there's also the structural stuff as well in a person's life and part of me just wonders, you know, with a society where we've got increasing inequality, um, how much of it is kind of helping to plan for the for the good and, you know, understand, um, you know, intent and what one can do and achieve if one puts one's mind to it. And then there's the other part, like there's, you know, the family violence, uh, there might be um, lack of a permanent home or structure or, or family set up. There, there might be a whole range of other factors that are um, just the, the – they call it moral luck or I suppose in this scenario um, moral bad luck like you might live in a very rural area you might not have access to the same um, health and social services or education services Uh, you might be born with a family that speaks a native tongue and not English therefore your proficiency is lower so we have a whole range of things I think which are a bit harder to address and I guess I'm I'm just thinking out loud about um, the challenges that people must face um, this, that, that kind of lie be, lies beyond that kind of positive motivational reasoning. Mm. You're quite right. Um, something that immediately comes to mind is uh, that we have some amazing agencies working in the not-for-profit uh, space um, that all do terrific work, work very similar to um, or sometimes exactly the same as the work that I just described. Um I think one of the biggest challenges that face us uh, is how to connect the great work that's being done in the not-for-profit space with uh, with the rest of the community, um, and that's that's an area that I find myself increasingly in now. So, you know, it's all well and good in, in many respects to uh, to work almost perfectly with a young person, but if you if they can't afford rent, um, and uh, you know if they if they can't get a job then it's really challenging to for them. And a lot of that work uh, ends up kind of needing to be repeated in the following years. And sometimes they even find themselves, you know, in the adult sector as well. Uh, so 
connecting opportunities at a young age is really important and um, and connecting young people into uh, to mainstream opportunities wherever possible. It's something that um, Society Melbourne does wonderfully well. They have, uh, um, or we have, I suppose, because I, I have just recently joined them as a, a board Yes, you, director. you must disclose any uh, potential conflict of interest. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I, I really like the way that uh, the Society Melbourne, um, from the get-go, wants to connect young people with... Uh, um, opportunities in the in the hospitality space, mm. um, and you know, in, in they disclose that uh, you can, in basically any opportunity that you want, they'll try and, and find uh, you know someone to connect you with. So this is um, kind of like a bit of a brokerage role almost, mm. and it's something that a lot of other not for profits are doing more frequently, yeah. um, or more often. Um, Launch Housing's got a similar program and and um the brotherhood of st lawrence's youth work is uh, is almost entirely structured that way uh, in terms of bringing the community in you know from the outset and, and building committees that have local business leaders involved yep. in them so it becomes uh, a, a um you know the role of of uh, many people in the community the whole community at times to um make sure that that no young people are left behind uh, and that we don't just consider the work uh, of not-for-profits to be picking up all the slack that is left by, um, you know, the, the kind of structures that, that we have in place in the community. It's, it's extremely well said. I think what you've sort of coined there is uh, there's really a couple of problems in there. One is um, how well do not-for-profits uh, tell their story to the community about how they can, you know, work together cooperatively or collaboratively to uh, problem-solve. One of the other ones that kind of lies within that is how well do not-for-profits um, actually collaborate to solve social problems? And I think there's been a bit of a um, divide, a conquer and divide kind of model um, placed on not-for-profits for the past few decades where there's a finite pool of funding. It's mainly government. Um, if you're a not-for-profit, it's up to you to get that money mm. and you need to get that money to grow and survive. Mm. Um, then there was sort of the consortium model or consortium model where government would say, all right, well, now we think it's good to collaborate, so we'll give uh, whatever um, three or four agencies come together and you know say they'll fulfil this contract, uh, you can have this money. But then it, it's sort of it's a really interesting space, I think, to study organisational behaviour because it's sort of these split or dual personality types. Um, there's the the conqueror, like going out there and winning the big contract and you know, sort of being better than everyone else, which all not-for-profits are competing really for mm. um, a certain amount of money. Mm. Then there's the other part of being the best collaborator. So we're the best at sort of brokering opportunity. We're the best at working with other not-for-profits and that – that second one, I think, is the one that's becoming more popular for funders. They kind of like not-for-profits to play nice in the mm. sandpit, mm. uh, whereas before it was sort of who's the biggest and strongest in the sandpit. Mm. Yeah, we're definitely undergoing a transition, I think, um, and it's not always easy. I think it's ideal to uh, to be able to readily collaborate with other not-for-profits, but it's not always easy because we, we have a lot of... Um, uh, you know, difficulties um, defining exactly what uh, role people will play, and then the um, the cost structures become more complex as well. It's like imagine if you said to um, Nando's and KFC, you know, you guys are both in the chicken business; you should just work together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I, I, really... I know it's not a perfect analogy, but mm. I just mean 
it's kind of funny because most people, I think, don't realize that not-for-profits, they're there to fulfill a social purpose uh, for, for uh, on behalf of the board, for the community. Mm. But a lot of the time, they run exactly like aggressive businesses uh, and expected to make surpluses, mm. expected to grow every year. Yeah. Expected to grow uh, income. Mm. So it's not that different. But when it comes to other organizations doing the same thing, there's like this sort of bizarre relationship where we're friends sometimes and then other times, you know, we'll work together. Mm. Other times we want to kill each other mm. and other times we'll just not be speaking at all and we'll go, we'll be going for the same competitive tender but separately. Mm. Yeah, it's a contentious space like that. Yeah. Um, but when it does work well, it, uh, it's, it's quite beautiful, isn't it's it? It's magical. And I'm sure as somebody who's sort of in the middle of that space, um, you know, it's sort of been a couple of years that you've been hearing that collaboration is what everyone's after, but collaboration comes in many shapes, forms and sizes. Do you have kind of anything in mind of recent collaborations that you've seen that have been really successful that you liked? Something that the uh, the Brotherhood is doing right now is – Working with a lot of agencies to make sure that services in in uh, hotspots like uh, Frankston North and, and Broad Meadows are really well coordinated, and um, the Brotherhood definitely takes a, a strong partnership approach uh, to those uh, sort of arrangements um, or, or that that work in general, which I think is fantastic. Um, and uh, something that I have personal experience with on the sort of um, frontline, uh, or as a frontline worker, was when I was working at. Uh, the Salvation Army in St Kilda, and we collaborated all the time with um, uh, other not-for-profits. Um, one example was some work we did with uh, a, a local education program, um, which was eventually uh, taken over by a Melbourne City Mission, and they would come into the refuge, I think, every week or every Wednesday and, and run an, an, an education session for the young people who were at the refuge. And most of those young people had, um, been disengaged from school for some time and uh, that was the first time that they had um, really sat down and, and done any dedicated learning and so it kicked off you know in their minds um, the the notion that they could do that again and they might have might well have given up on it um, that's a good example and so did that work out quite well outcomes wise it was amazing yeah, and for the entirety of the time that I was working there, um, that happened every Wednesday, no matter what. Um, and then there were other uh, things like um, community health uh, organisations going into the big uh, crisis accommodation at, at Launch Housing, uh, or the Launch Housing Crisis Accommodation South Bank. Um, and they they are terrific. Uh, the, the community health organisations in the inner south would go in, provide nursing services, um, they would uh, do needle and syringe uh, exchanges and um, uh, provide like a GP bus that would go there once a week. I love the idea of anything in a bus that goes to where the problem is. It's, it's just, yeah. you know, it's such an old school concept, but then like people need place-based services so much. Mm. Yeah, it sounds dynamic, doesn't it? Well, when you... Whenever someone in the not-for-profit sector says, you know what we, we should do, we need a bus, yeah. you know, how often does that come up? Yeah. It's just hilarious. It's just a funder's dream. Yeah, it's a funder's, <laughs> it's a funders dream. But buses, they, they, get, they get things done, you know, yeah. primary care bus, mm. dental, you know, health bus, family mm. violence bus, like mm. put anything in a bus and just move it to where the problem is. It's, um, mm. it's actually a very economical solution. If you can't build a, uh, a wraparound hub, uh, bus is not a bad second-best option. Mm. So, um, you know, if I could uh, so take it even what you're saying um, about partnerships, as hard as it is to get them going and, and maintain them, when they work, they work amazingly yeah. well. 
and uh, the outcomes are extraordinary. And more often than not, the people delivering the services are so happy to be working effectively with uh, you know cohorts of people who are typically pretty hard to reach. And um, you know, having that partnership opens up their you know referral streams and um, you know their ability to to find people and uh, you know to work with them on their terms. Yep. Um, so as uh, as difficult it is from a from a governance perspective um, to get all those partnerships together, the people actually delivering the work they they are crying out for that sort of well, I th- stuff. I think people like working in partnerships. I mean, it's mm. no surprise to me, but it's very exciting the idea of working with working with people from. Um, different organizations my next question to you was just going to be around you know when you have seen collaborations work well what is it about those collaborations that makes them work well like are there kind of a couple of things that you need or the special special source to make it work well mm. i think that there needs to be a gap and there needs to be a commitment you know from both sides uh, to to you know use the skills that uh, that either side has to, to fill that gap um and then the uh, the workers will, will typically do the rest themselves um, yep. because they're so passionate about what they're doing. You know, just about everyone I've ever met doing social work or working in the not-for-profit sector generally uh, is there for because they, they want to change the world. Mm. Yeah, You um, want to change the world. It's very clear from your passion and the way you approach um, the sector that you're, you know, you're committed to social change. What, what, what's important for you to see in the next few years uh, from your work? Do you think much about that? Sometimes, probably more so uh, when I was in that transition phase, moving into moving from direct practice into um, you know, or deciding what I want to do with my policy degree, and I found it really interesting uh, reading through your LinkedIn profile about the uh, the work that you've done. I still can't um, believe you looked at my LinkedIn profile. My job is to be prepared and look at your LinkedIn profile. You're not supposed to reciprocate. It's very impressive. It's very awesome. impressive. Well, you know, you got to try and you got to try and scrub up as well as possible. Um. I was fascinated by the work that you did in government, uh, you know, in like the 2013-14 sort of era. I can't um, believe you just referred to an era of my LinkedIn profile. That, that's that's that, that's a podcast first. It's a little bit creepy, I guess. But, no, um, it's amazing. It's good for you. Just a, a quick disclaimer. Um, um, not a total creep. I do have kind of a uh, photographic memory. Like if I see a date or a number. Yep. Then, um, then I typically remember it because and, I, yeah. And you remembered, you must have remembered the crossover because you were there. Were you in a different area at the same time, or because I know you were at DHHS also for a period. Uh, that was um, that was very early on doing yep. uh, in like 2011. Yeah, um, the bit before when child I was protection. There. Yeah, yep, in Cheltenham. Um, but uh, when I finished the public policy degree, I, I um, was dead set on going into policy. And uh, and I would still like to, you know, potentially pursue that one day, going yep. into research and policy, um, or either or. Um, but at this stage, I'm really happy doing what I'm doing because I, I get to have such a close connection to the work. Yep. Um, I'm really only one step removed from the work. Um, and, uh, and I also get to do a lot of the community engagement and uh, I was interested to hear about your experience doing government policy work. Yeah, because that's what I originally saw myself doing after after being a frontline worker. Yeah, a lot of people ask me about my experience doing policy work, and I must say, um, it probably looks a bit more glamorous on the LinkedIn and CV than it actually is. <laughs> yeah, there's not 
a lot of doing of the policy work. It's a lot of being thrust into a very uncertain environment where there's constant restructures. Um, you're not listened to because you're either too young or your ideas are too innovative. Um, yeah, it wasn't the best time for me, but I think there's certainly a place. But I think for both you and I to go in a little bit older and wiser and more mature at a manager or six level or an sort of executive level would be much better mm. um, because I think um, as much as government is a you know meritocracy in ways, it's also that the people who are higher up's ideas are better by virtue of the fact they're higher up. Mm. So, you know, essentially if you want to be good in that space, um, don't start at the bottom <laughs> would be my advice. And yep. it, it sort, of, sort of looks like we're both, you know, I may go back there at some point uh, when I'm a bit more senior in my career. You may go back as well, but for you to go there now, you know, you would have you would be able to bring exceptional um, sector experience in, in a specialised area that they desperately need. They need more subject matter experts. They don't need people who are young, been through as trainees, and have been in government for you know twenty years, and then you know rise up to executive director. Mm. They need people who have actually seen the problems, worked with the clients, understand the structural issues, and can bring that intelligence to the planning. Mm. Um, but you know, I mean, for me, we've both had a bit of a similar journey in ways. You know, we've had that kind of government early stage experience, not mm. you know. Mine was policy, yours wasn't. Then we might we've done some different things. You went into the not for profit space a lot earlier than I did, um, and you were also a practitioner. I've, I've never been a practitioner of anything really. I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm a uh, glorified generalist. Um, I do strategy uh, and impact particularly well, impact measurement and outcomes mm-hmm. measurement, and um, that's a big part of how I add value to the strategic planning process and mm-hmm. implementing strategic plans, but. Yeah, that's the high-level stuff. And with the policy stuff, it can often just be you're working on um, proposals or working documents that will never see the light of day. Mm. So you can spend, um, like I know people have spent a year or two working on a policy or a paper or a working document, and even worse than it not going anywhere, they don't know where it went. They're not told. <laughs> yeah, that's so, been really tough. I would yeah. find that extremely challenging. So as somebody who has been close to seeing real – like. You've worked originally in, in working directly with people to help them get better outcomes. So that's the first line of sight. You can see the change you're creating. The second level is you're working to enable the, the frontline workers to get those good results. So you still have a high degree of certainty that good's happening. Um, I'd say that working in government in policy is like eighth degree. Like, <laughs> you know, you just don't know. There's, there's so much that you don't know that you don't know mm. um, that it just becomes a bit overwhelming. Mm. I do think there would be value in going in at a higher level, though, if you had carriage of a portfolio and certain commitments about what you could do and couldn't do and what the work entailed, who it was with, and what was the likely sort of um, outcome you were going for. Mm. But I think when I was thrown in, it was sort of just very much the deep waters, not a lot of clarity or vision, um, and everyone is just basically in survival mode. It's like COVID all the time Mm. uh, in government. Yeah, lots of short-term contracts, aren't there? Lots of short-term contracts. Um, I remember I was there for a four-month stint or maybe it was a six-month stint once at DHHS, and there were two restructures in that time. Wow. And it was just exhausting. There was a change of secretary just before that. Um, people looked – everyone looked like they needed an extended two-month holiday to just become human again. Mm. Uh, and that scared yeah. the crap out of me, to be honest. Yeah. It would be uh – Quite amazing to be able to transition across from the uh, the community sector into a position of 
you know, relative responsibility in the government. Um, one person who I have a lot of admiration for did that, uh, the former um, uh, deputy CEO of Launch Housing, Heather Holst, yep. moved into a role as the commissioner for residential tenancies yes. in Victoria. Yeah, so if you can step into a commissioner yeah. role, Oof. I would do that. I don't you th- should do that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think just anyone can step into no, a commissioner course, role. <laughs> of course. Of course. But, but, but what I think is if you aim for sectoral excellence, which I think you're on mm. the way to, um, and I, I would love to be on that way too, um, I think that's the best way to do it, to go in. So you've kind of – that way people respect the difference you can make and therefore you're heard more. Mm. But um, I don't know. It's a tough one. I think we're, we're all on a journey. Mm. What I want to ask you about actually was slightly more – um, pivoted question you know you strike me as a fairly deep thinker how do you like to learn are you a reader a podcast listener uh, audiobooks person uh do you read do you frequent certain websites uh i uh, i have started listening to podcasts but only very recently in the last six months i would say um because a friend of mine who lives in chicago he's a massive podcast fan um, huge Joe Rogan fan, oh, but Joe that's Rogan not podcast. not to sell him short because he also listens to a lot of others as well. Sure. Yeah, so um, we, we can't pigeonhole him as just like an extreme uh, intellectual dark web person. <laughs> yep. Um, and then once I got uh, back from visiting him last year, I uh, I started delving into them more. I tend to gravitate always towards sports, so I have a very limited um, attention span for um you know serious things uh, <laughs> how'd you make it here i thought we were going to do a lot of depth tonight <laughs> um so i usually try and and uh you know go go to say the conversation uh i do a bit, bit of Love reading the conversation. on there um i do a lot of reading through the work that i do and, and the various things that i have to uh, you'd be reading a lot of policy papers and whatnot yeah the things i have to scrub up on to um make sure that i know what i'm talking about um and then invariably after a period of time, uh, which is usually shorter than I'd like it to be, I ended up just, um, you know, looking at sports statistics. And- You're all over the NBA. <laughs> I, I know it. Hey, do you know Jeremiah Thomas? I don't know. Oh, he's a bloke who was um, just a BSL who's um, gone off to do some research on economic I do, dignity. I do know Jeremiah Thomas. I yep. met him. He's a lovely guy. Yeah. Yeah, so if you uh, could edit out the bit where I said I don't know him, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you'll have the advantage of going after his podcast, so he may not hear it. You know, he might oh, just yeah. tune in for his podcast. We'd recently recorded um, a couple of weeks ago, so oh, great, yeah, yeah, he'll go yeah. To so, but he, very charismatic just, guy, mm. charismatic. I noted it's hard to tell actually his charisma over Zoom. I think I think it's good charisma, mm. but you know, over Zoom, it's always a challenge. He did have a whiskey with me, even though it was remote, which I respected a lot. It was like a very like um bold enterprising move yeah yeah uh, but he wrote a, a really good paper on economic dignity and uh, he, he um i think it's gone across the school for social impact from bsl mm. and um i imagine you'd read a lot of papers like what he's putting out yeah and i find i have to read them as quickly as i can um because those papers are incredible yeah um but like i was saying before that uh that finite attention span yeah. i need to um absorb as much as possible across as wide a range of things as i can um the bsl does so many different things which is wonderful um but yeah i, I find myself needing to be a, a quasi uh expert on on aged care hoping nobody asks me a really difficult <laughs> question one day and then children families and next and youth the day after that so um, you do too much. You just need to focus on one thing, basically. When I was at Launch Housing, it was really good um, because I, I ended up learning just about everything I thought I could about housing affordability and um, what we could do to um, create more supply of affordable housing in the you know Victoria's housing market. Um, 
And it was definitely a rude awakening going over to BSL and realizing, wow, like I've got so much to learn. There are so many different sectors out there. And did you ever just like dream about wanting to write for the conversation one day? I read a lot of uh, things for the conversation when I was finishing off the Master of Public Policy. Um, did you want to write for the mode? Did you ever think about it? I think I'm a fair way off that. Some of the people who uh, um, submit articles to the conversation are decorated PhDs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's why I ask because I, I love reading it and sometimes I fantasize about writing for them and I've yeah. always wanted to, but then mm. I realize there's no way I'm qualified. And, you know, you probably I'm, will in 10 years. but Maybe so, one day. Yeah. Call it a, call it a, a, mm. a life goal of sorts. Mm. Do you have uh, – have, have you – we were talking a bit earlier about sensory deprivation and infrared sauters. Oh, yeah. Any life hacks or things that you've done recently to sort of improve your own productivity or well-being? It's got to be uh, floating. I don't know if you discussed this with Levi, but Levi was actually the one who put me onto that. No, he didn't mention floating at all. Oh, yeah, right. Um, I don't know if he's doing it as much anymore. It might just be the bouldering. But uh, I spoke to him last June and was saying to him that, uh, you know, at that particular time I was juggling a lot. I was finding it a little bit difficult to focus. He recommended floating and then it was um, it was a game changer. Really was because uh, initially I was going every fortnight. I couldn't get enough of it. But now just explain I, what it is for anyone who doesn't know. So, I I personally uh, am fine with this. Not it's not for everyone. Um, but essentially, you are in a, a tank. Uh, there's complete darkness, and you're you're floating on your back uh, in water that's salt got so water. much salt in it that you you just um, stay you know at the top of it all the, all the time. There's no effort that you need to make. Uh, like physically to uh, to keep yourself floating. Um, so you put your hands behind your head and just sort of either drift away or think or, uh, you know, anything you want. Um, and you, you can't really have any expectations about what's going to happen as you're going in because it will just uh, it will just happen to you. You know, whatever you need for that hour, uh, it'll find you. And um, I, I think it's, uh, it's fantastic. So in the early days, um, you know, when I was finding it really difficult to focus, it was en- enabling me to break down exactly what I needed to, to get done into steps. And nowadays when I go in there, um, what I like about it most is, is it's probably the only hour in my entire life, aside from when I'm sleeping, when I don't have a screen in front of me, Yep. whether that be a TV, a phone or a computer. Yep. And it's you completely switch off. You give you, your body a chance to rest and your mind a chance to rest. And So, so awesome. what do you, do you just kind of, um, are you lying in there and just freely associating or are you thinking about, anything do you try not to think about things or i used to think about things in a really structured way yeah when i was sort of um breaking things down into steps yeah nowadays uh just freely associate yeah that's cool. fortunately there's not as much going on in my life anymore and i don't <laughs> feel like i need to break everything down now it's just about relaxing that's awesome yeah what a tip hey listen been awesome chatting with you we are hitting that uh delicate 45 minute mark if people want to learn more about you connect and hear more about your work uh what's the best place to find you Probably LinkedIn outside, yeah. Um, I only got LinkedIn in 2017 after I moved into fundraising. So uh, welcome, um, yeah. Thank you. Mm. Yeah, so I'm enjoying it, enjoying being on there. And uh, yeah, if you if you would like to ever chat to me, please feel free to reach out. Mate, thank you so much for coming on. Thank um, you. I wish you good floating, and I hope you wish me good bouldering. And uh, yeah, look forward to connecting again soon. Yeah, one's uh, considerably more fit than the other. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. 
You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. This episode is brought to you by Dragon Ball Legends, the mobile fighting game based on the Dragon Ball series. Featuring high-quality 3D graphics and authentic voice acting, the game follows Shallot, an original character, and his adventures with Goku and others. With intuitive controls and simple card-based gameplay, unleash combos and powerful team-based attacks. Battle players around the world in friendly matches, compete in the rankings, or team up in co-op. And now Dragon Ball Legends 5th Anniversary is on. Download Dragon Ball Legends today.